Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, March 9th, 2021. I am John Podvoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Um, when people examine the 1.9 bazillion trillion jillion coronavirus pork bill um relief bill uh goodies keep falling out of it all over the place we talked the other day about this um uh, bailout for private uh, pension funds uh which is uh, pretty stunning and uh abe you noted yesterday uh another interesting bailout that raises interesting questions ideologically about Biden and the Democrats. I think actually Noah brought it to our attention, but uh, I had a thought about it. Um, yeah, the federal stimulus, uh, it, it it erases the majority of San Francisco's uh, budget deficit. Um, uh, as, a, as a tweet here has it, um, saving City Hall from having to make uh, uh, painful service cuts and layoffs. So it, so it, it bails out San Francisco. Um, so, Abe, uh, who is the congressman from San Francisco? Nancy Pelosi. Oh, oh who's the congressman? Nancy Pelosi. Sorry, yeah, Nancy Pelosi. So, the Speaker of the House got in her got a got a got a, uh, what is it like a couple hundred billion dollars for her district? There you go, like that. Yeah. That's right. So, um, like, generally, an earmark is like fifteen million dollars for a cowboy museum cowboy poetry museum not you know a specific hundreds of billion dollar bailout or something for do i have the numbers right because maybe maybe it's not that quite that big but um maybe someone should look that up so i don't i'm, I'm not being a, a an idiot but uh however it is that that is that is not an earmark that It'll is keep them in nice six, ice cream six, for 650 million bill billion or million million 650 million. Okay. Okay. More than half a billion. So, yeah, as I say, the classic earmark is, you know, um, to buy 12 harvesters for your county or something like that. Not, not 650 billion, $650 million. But it's funny that you, that you mentioned the cowboy poetry thing, because that was one of those right wing talking points that only righties knew about. And the left neither was aware of or cared about. And when we talk about how this thing has a long tail, it's this sort of thing. The only people who notice this stuff are people on the right. The left is not going to go to the polls and register their satisfaction with the bailout of San Francisco in two years. They're not going to be aware of it. But people like us will be talking about it forever. Right. I mean, that's, that, that is basically how earmarks ended up being being destroyed was this notion that uh, you have these uh, district, I mean, uh, district-specific codicils to legislation that are stuck in there in order to ensure the support, uh, something garnering majority support. Anyway, Abe, so I apologize for well, for this distraction. So there is this money, and it's in there, right? And we look at this bill. It's uh, $2 trillion. He wanted to go big. Biden said he wanted to go big. And they're throwing money at pension, private pension funds. They're throwing money at San Francisco. They're throwing money at we don't even know what uh, you know basically blue state bailouts on a on a on a mammoth scale with this uh, support for uh, state budgets when in fact state budgets did not crater during the during the pandemic the way they did during the Great Recession 
So you you had this observation, Abe. Yeah, so basically, <clears throat> so far, the Biden presidency is a further left, effectively a further left presidency than, say, Bernie Sanders would be, because there would be more vigilance. There would be, on, among uh, Republicans and within the Democratic Party, there would be more vigilance about uh, President Sanders making um, wild uh, uh, left-wing moves and and paying for all sorts of new and expanded programs because it would be understood, it would be recognized as a huge lurch in the direction towards socialism, towards leftism, towards whatever else. With Biden, we don't have that, we don't have that um, kind of response. He is, by virtue of being who he is with his uh, history, um, this is not seen as the great lurch leftward that needs protecting against. So it, it, it gets through. I, I think this is a fascinating observation because I think it is absolutely true that a, a Bernie Sanders elected on an ideological platform saying, okay, I was elected. On, now, we don't know if Bernie Sanders would have been elected, but let's say he elected on Everyone's like, oh, here he got, he's going to do what he said he's going to do. And we can't have this because uh, the American people aren't ready for it and they don't like it. But having a kind of anodyne, uh, you know, prop president standing in front of this uh, mammoth uh, effort to basically reignite the welfare state or, or, or to take the welfare state into new dimensions of welfare statism Um uh, the cover is the cover is perfect. No one can deny that Bernie Sanders, you know, is a socialist. He said he was a socialist. No one can deny that Bernie Sanders like wants revolutionary change. He says he wants revolutionary change. So yeah, people's hackles would have been up. The bu- the buttons would have been pushed appropriately, and there would have been more anxiety about about the execution. But there isn't there. There's also something I don't think it's intentional, but there's something genius about another thing that I think conservatives have correctly been complaining about since day one of the Biden administration, which is this avalanche of legislating via executive order by kind of front loading it and just pouring so many of those things out there. It it was harder to kind of hold up any single one, all of many of which actually were sort of political payoffs to the more radical uh, progressives in his coalition. It was harder to kind of make any one argument about them stick, unless you're someone who follows pretty closely in conservative media, you know, what everybody's pet causes. So I think, I don't know if that was intentional or not, but just the sheer volume of stuff coming out of the administration in the first few weeks made it harder to argue against. That's the other thing is that there would, Abe's right, obviously, there'd be a lot more, there were, people on the left would be more self-conscious of leftward moves under a socialist president. But the right has sort of abdicated its role here, its traditional role too. I'm kind of, it's, it's obnoxious, but it's nevertheless a valuable data point. CNN, you know, monitors every word that comes out of broadcast on Fox News. And they, you know, performed a LexisNexis search and found that the term cancel culture was mentioned more than twice as often as COVID relief bill or the COVID bill. They're not doing their digital uh, diligence on this bill because it doesn't move the needle. Audience isn't interested in it anymore. The audience on the right wants culture wars. And that's it. Legislation just doesn't jazz everybody on the right. So maybe 
Well, Maybe there isn't that much policing on the left, but there's certainly no policing on the right either. Well, and there's no one on the right making what needs to be made, which, uh, the point that needs to be made, which is there's a great deal, particularly in this most recent COVID relief package, that is culture war from the left imposed on the country. But no one's making that argument. No politically, no elected official on the right is making that argument in a persuasive way or a consistent way. Look, a simple fact of the matter is Democrats won the election. Biden won the election. They 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 held the Senate or, you know, they've um, you know, they've sort of they've taken the Senate with this 50 50 uh, margin. Uh, they control the House. It was going to be time for pent up liberal demands and liberal interests. And the first bill of the Biden administration was going to pass because you come with your first big bill and it's a relief and virus stimulus bill and and you don't get it through and that's the end of the presidency the presidency becomes a caretaker period it has no authority it has no power it has no ability to work its will people understand that and it's every man for himself so this bill was going to be passed the interesting point about it was that its size and shape and scope were entirely at the discretion of the Biden administration they could have said, given the you know, given the the economic growth numbers and various other things, out of fear of inflation, we are scaling back our one point nine billion dollar proposal to one point two billion dollars, also, so we can get bipartisan support, so the entire nation can be behind it. They chose not to do that. They would have, so they they had a kind of free call here. That's my opinion, and that you know, when Mansion and Cinema killed the minimum wage bill. They killed the minimum wage aspect of the bill because it was like, okay, you know what? That really is a bridge too far. Uh, our, you know, small business doesn't like it all of a sudden. It really has nothing whatsoever to do with this. And if you really want to take it up, we can take it up in another time in another way. They were going to get a bill through, whatever their bill was. They chose to go with a pretty radical piece of legislation. In, in in general terms, more radical than a large Republican tax cut, because, of course, the whole thing about Republican tax cuts is they are a form of withholding money from the federal government. And this is a form of direct government subvention into state budgets, local budgets, transportation budgets, and people's pocketbooks and their checking accounts. And... Uh, Biden did not run on this. I'm not saying he didn't run on much of anything. But yeah, if if he had said this was the kind of legislation that he wanted to pass in 2019 when he was running as the guy who wasn't crazy, they might have been able to say, gee, you sound just as crazy as we do. Now, granted, it wasn't like Medicare for all, which was what was the what was the bit what was the price tag on that? Was it 32 trillion or something like that? There was some where they were literally staying around talking about as though the federal government could spend $32 trillion and they could just get it back with a, you know, with some kind of two cents on every dollar tax or something like that. But uh, they would have had a way in to attack Biden on the grounds that uh, he he's, he's posing as some kind of phony moderate when in fact he's more like us. Now, maybe they wouldn't have wanted to say that. I'm just saying that that uh, in, in one way, people keep saying, oh, Biden said he wanted to be bipartisan and see he's failed because he's not bipartisan. He what that was. That's nothing like that. He was what's he not supposed to want his legislation because Republicans won't go along with it. Like that's that is a ridiculous talking point. However, what he said was 
he wasn't going to be a crazy lunatic Democrat. And he is, basically. I mean, he's not, just he's not, he's comporting himself like he's a very boring, stolid old guy who can't remember the name of his defense secretary. But that is, but his well, and he's lucky. In his, something else. His, he's lucky. Noah's right, though, that he's quite lucky in the enemies he has, the partisan enemies he has, because that those distractions, you know, Doctor Seuss books being revoked. These are the things that are. He, I think Noah's right. They're animating the right. I think some legitimately, but we were joking because someone was sending around the story about how the Biden's rescue dogs had to be sent back to Delaware. And I think, Abe, I think you're the one who's like, this is, or Abe or Noah said, you know, on our text thread, you know, this is going to be all Fox News talks about tomorrow. And there's so many more important things, partisan things that we should all be engaged with right now that are, that we're losing. And, and people's attention span for this is not ideal. I, so I guys, also don't know guys, how much. Uh, give me a second, Noah, because I wanted to talk to you today again about the book I've been talking about all month, and we'll be talking about all month, The Telling by Mark Gerson, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. Uh, Gerson's book is, a, is, is an account, a study, a discussion, a, a jumping off point for thinking about the Haggadah, the, Passa, the manual guidebook, uh, prayer book of the Passover Seder and uh, a uh, one of the most fascinating intellectual journeys that every every Jew takes every year is the discussion of Passover that is encouraged by the Seder. I just want to pay, uh, point out one of one of the uh, many riches to be found in the book on every page. This is uh, from page one hundred and twenty. So one of the interesting things about the Haggadah it's the story of the Exodus from Egypt, of course. And guess whose name is never mentioned in the Haggadah? Moses. Why isn't Moses' name mentioned? It's one of the great discussion points that people go back to again and again and again when they uh, they engage in the act of of trying to understand what went on uh, in the Exodus and what it means. And here is what uh, he he says. Um, uh, the authors of the Haggadah obviously did not fail in telling the story of the Exodus, yet they are in a seeming quandary. We are commanded by the Torah on what became Seder night to tell the story to our children. And we use the Haggadah, but it does not contain most of the main characters in the story. And yet the Haggadah is now commanding us to tell the story at length, which is really impossible without mentioning its main characters. How do we resolve this riddle? Well, the Haggadah requires us to tell the story by reaching outside the Haggadah. A guide, even a generally great book like the Haggadah or its human equivalent in a wise mentor, is only that, a guide. The Haggadah is significantly, purposefully, and strategically incomplete. The responsibility for something genuinely important, particularly the combination of parenting and Jewish perpetuation that the Pesach celebration embodies, must be in source. The, the, this is just one page of the uh, 320 odd pages of insight and inspiration you can get from the telling by Mark Gerson. Get it at Amazon. Get it at Barnes and Noble. Get it from your local bookseller. Get it wherever you want to get it, and it will enliven, enrich, and um, make your seder's this year uh, even even more uh, interesting and flavorful. Okay. Uh, no, I interrupted you, and I apologize. Oh, just that I don't really know the extent to which we can say that Joe Biden is taking the lead on this thing, or rather just deferring to Congress. If you recall, in late March of last year, when the bottom had fallen out of everything, and there were some real rush negotiations in Congress for a $2 trillion economic assistance package. Remember, we already did this, um, in case anybody forgot. 
And Nancy Pelosi blew up negotiations saying that the House wouldn't support whatever the Senate passed. And she introduced a competing package, which was a complete bomb. It just landed with an absolute thud. But it was a statement of principle insofar as it included $33 million for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association, $100 million for NASA, $300 million for PBS, $500 million for the Museum and Library Services, Kennedy Center Performing Arts money, D.C.-based charter school money. I mean, it was really embarrassing on their parts, but they demonstrated what they wanted to do and went ahead and did it now. And Joe Biden really just wants a bill. His, His intention has been pretty clear all this time. This White House wants something. And they're willing to accept whatever comes across their desk, pretty much. And it seems like the House Democratic Caucus is what's leading this thing. The Senate manages to tweak around the margins, but this, the House Republican or House Democratic Caucus is determining what Joe Biden's agenda is when it comes to COVID relief. So, if that's the case, then then he is the uh, front man for the House Democratic Caucus, and the House Democratic Caucus is. Uh, more left-wing uh, in its constitution and its ideological motivation and comportment and direction than anything has ever been in, in the history of of of, of uh, American political life. I mean, that is that seems to uh, go without saying, and that this is part of the big sort that the entire that the uh, moderate Democrats, just like the moderate Republicans, have essentially been driven out. Moderate Democrats and sort of, uh, you know, conservative Democrats lost their seats uh, to Republicans uh, throughout the 2010s, and moderate Republicans lost their seats to Trumpians during the 2010s. And so there is no, there's not, there, are, there is not much left in the middle. And now they're in charge instead of Republicans. So uh, the, 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 disappearance of the middle except in the form of three or four senators in the united states senate who have the whip hand at least on that body's behavior uh means that that is where the democratic party is however christine's right though the what the Biden administration has done on its own are these executive orders and personnel hires and things like that and some of that suggests that they do they are consonant with the interests and the ideological leanings of the of the caucus. Certainly everything about race and sex, anything that's related to, you know, women's rights or intersectional race, uh, anti-racism efforts, those are all hardcore left of left side of the aisle. There isn't any room there for arguing that he's trying to find some moderating path. And even his allies in the mainstream media, I'm going to write about this today for the blog, but a new Title IX um uh, executive order came out yesterday on International Women's Day from Biden. And, you know, even the New York Times couldn't massage what what Biden's going to try to do here, which is to rescind, uh, try to rescind rules that were made under Trump that actually a lot of mainstream liberal uh, legal uh, scholars thought were long overdue and necessary because of previous overreach by the Obama administration. But, you know, they're going to reverse that. And even the Times couldn't quite Uh, massage it as, oh, he's just, you know, he's really going to just try to moderate, you know, the extreme of the Obama era and the extreme of the Trump era. No, he's not. He wants to go back to what had initially been the extreme under Obama. And then we'll see what happens in the course, because I I personally hope and don't think he will uh, succeed in that effort. But it's pretty clear that that's what he's veering back towards. Well, we should we should go into this a little bit. So the Title IX reforms made under under Trump had to do with uh, the uh, the ways in which academic institutions under the direction of the Obama Department of Education had rewritten uh, or, or, or had basically obliged many colleges, not that they weren't pushing on an open door, 
to revise the way that they handled allegations of sexual assault on campus to basically uh, weigh everything, you know, uh, end due process for those who were accused. And it's very important to note, to sorry to interrupt you, it's important to note that he, the Obama administration did this, uh, championed, I might say, in the media by Joe Biden as vice president. They did this not by the normal, formal federal rules making process, which is transparent, allows public comment, usually takes about a year. They did it by fiat, by issuing what they call a guidance letter. The guidance letter basically puts schools on notice that this is what our Justice Department will be looking at if there's any enforcement issues, it's kind of like a, you know, kind of administrative threat in a sense, in that if you're a school administrator and you read this letter, which, as John absolutely is correct to say, basically eliminated due process for the accused, you're, you're going to err on the side of believing the victim every single time. Um, but it was not there. The public had no uh, time or any sort of ability to comment on what the Obama administration did. It just overnight after this letter's issued, schools started to react. And the lawsuits from uh, falsely accused students have have followed in droves and most of them have been successful. I mean, I think something like 95% or more have been successful. And we're now in the hundreds of lawsuits uh, in which people's lives are ruined, uh, kids' lives are ruined or destroyed. And it takes them years to sort of work this through the courts in which it is said basically that they, you know, that that they're, these were star chamber processes. And uh, and even more important, because you mentioned the rules making that they had issued this letter, was that the Trump administration in reversing some of this did follow yes. the process. Did and they spoke to victims groups. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm sorry to interrupt, but like yeah. this is, no, this yeah, is yeah. one of my little obsessions. Um, well, you wrote the, a whole piece about <laughs> Betsy DeVos for the magazine yes. on, on on this subject. So yeah, uh, and she, you know, I don't, ag- I didn't, I didn't agree with her on everything she did as secretary, but this was something that was long overdue, and she did an excellent job on um, the rules making that they went through. They heard from all kinds of people. They heard from the victims groups. They heard from legal scholars. They heard. They had hundreds of thousands of public comments. Um, the whole formal process worked as intended, and. Um, um, who do you think when the rules were announced, the new rules were announced, which actually really beefed up due process and, you know, required things like, you know, being able to face the accused um, or at least, you know, respond in your own defense and to know even to know who accused you, which in many cases, some of these kids who were accused did not know. Joe Biden went to the media and said, basically, this is just going to allow rape culture to run rampant on campus. So he, you know, his position on this is very clearly, you know, the Obama era. We don't really care about due process, believe the victim in all cases. And as many people, including myself, have pointed out, you know, the allegations that Tara Reid made against him for harassment and inappropriate sexual behavior when he was senator, by the rules that administration had provided with their letter of guidance, he would have been found guilty easily. That standard. So there's, you know, lots of ironies here. But yeah, it's going to be harder for them to reverse that, but they're going to try. Guys, I want to talk to you about Acton Line, a podcast from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty that asks the question what good is freedom without virtue? You can join economists, religious leaders, writers, newsmakers, thinkers every Wednesday for conversations that bridge the gap between good intentions and sound economics on Acton Line. By demonstrating the compatibility of faith, liberty, and free markets, conversations on Act in Line reveal how economic freedom is essential to creating an environment in which religious freedom can flourish and that the market can function only when people behave morally. Faith and freedom must go hand in hand to learn about it, to hear about it, to be uh, you know, illuminated by it. Subscribe to Act in Line. Visit actin.org slash commentary. 
or search Acton Line on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are available. That's acton.org slash commentary to subscribe. Uh, so let's talk about this uh, gaslighting that Christine mentioned, because it, it, this is also going to happen, I, I predict, um, after a, a, a ready explosion of concern on, on, in, in quarters that follow this on this lifting of the um, or return to the Obama era's war on due process uh, in, uh, you know, in these, in these uh, campus cases. Um, which is that, uh, you know, uh, Christine will write a blog post and say, this is terrible and everything like that. And someone will say, you, you people are just, what, what, what? this is, you know, why are you getting so head up? Is there something you seem to be a little, uh, over anxious about all they're doing is just restoring something that the, you know, illegitimate Trump administration like pushed, uh, to, you know, give a sop to white supremacists and what, what, What's the matter with you people? Why are you? Why do you get so hysterical about nothing? Why do you get so hysterical about Dr. Seuss? That's my other favorite. Is all oh, you people? You keep screaming. About, Fox is talking about Dr. Seuss every five minutes. Kevin McCarthy's reading Green Eggs and Ham. What? Why? What? Dr. Seuss? Like, don't you have more important things to do? So the Dr. Seuss banning thing began. It, it took like seventy-two hours. It began when word came that Loudoun County, Virginia was lifting a couple of Dr. Seuss books or books from the library because uh, it was disturbed by some some things in them, right? And then we heard that immediately upon hearing this, the Biden administration had removed Dr. Seuss's name from some proclamation on International Reading Day or Happy Book Day or whatever nonsense day they decided it was that they were celebrating. And then, like 24 hours later, the Seuss enterprises like the business that runs the dr seuss business dr seuss not having any <coughs> heirs apparently <coughs> so this is this kind of ongoing business i don't even know who profits from it exactly um announced that it was going to suppress six dr seuss titles uh because of their um disturbing imagery or things that weren't you know and then this all happens and then the prices, then people try put their books up on eBay to sell them. And then eBay bans the sale of the old books. And people who go, what on earth is going, what, my God, how, what is this going on? This was all a conversation among people on the left. Had nothing to do with us. Had nothing to do with us. And then It wasn't even a conversation. It's worse right. than that. It was just accepted, an accepted consensus that emerged absent any sort of conversation or national yeah. debate. Right. So, and then this happens. And then people on the right go, what are you doing? You're banning Dr. Seuss? Is there something wrong with you? And then they're like, why are you so obsessed with Dr. Seuss? You seem kind of overly obsessed with Dr. Seuss. Who are you? To Why are you so crazy on the subject of Dr. Seuss? We didn't say anything about Dr. Seuss. That literally is gaslighting that is what gaslighting is in the play when the woman says she walks into the room and the gaslight lamps in the victorian mansion have gone down by half like they're half as bright as they were and she's like what happened to the light and her husband's like nothing happened to the light why do you think something happened to the light are you crazy have you gone insane i mean that that is what gaslighting is 
They create the Dr. Seuss issue. They act on the Dr. Seuss issue. Dr. Seuss is suppressed. Books are literally being suppressed. And and people say, you're suppressing Dr. Seuss? And then they're like, we're not suppressing. You're you're suppressing Dr. Seuss. But but isn't it even worse? Because they start by saying, you're obsessed with us. That's the kind of the AOC dynamic, too. Remember, she was on the the front of every single magazine cover for a year. And when when right-wingers are like, wow, that seems excessive, really? And they're like, you're obsessed with her. So it's like that, but it's been taken one step further in our kind of woke universe now, which is now even questioning the suppression or banning of books is it is you're you're actively defending white supremacy because you're fighting to keep a racist image in circulation. And that's actually the argument that's now being made for when people even raise the question of like, is this really the best way to go about it? I mean, there could be an interesting conversation. You could put a sticker over the bad image in all the next books, which has a little learning lesson. on. I mean, there are a million ways you could handle this that doesn't re- require you to suppress the actual book and to withdraw it from circulation. No one's interested in that. So I do think that the 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 aspect about, you know, race here is is one of the reasons why it's the the left has been very quick in these culture wars to pounce to accuse yeah. Republicans and conservatives of pouncing on anything because they want to move it right to that discussion because a lot of people will stop and go like, "Oh, hey, I'm not getting involved now." <laughs> Look, let's move on to the most ridiculous example, which is Charles Blow, the columnist for the New York Times. Uh, going on Twitter and saying that the cartoon skunk Pepe Le Pew uh, is a disgusting, uh, you know, handsy, uh, you know, sexual harasser and must be suppressed. I think he actually said canceled or suppressed or something like that. Contrib- contributes to rape culture. Was the- oh, contributes to rape culture, yes. So let us talk about Pepe Le Pew for five seconds just so we're not crazy. Pepe Le Pew, a 70-year-old character who is in like five or six uh, Looney Tunes cartoons, is a portrait of a sexual harasser. That is the idea, metaphorically and actually. He is a stinky, disgusting creature. He is a skunk. But he doesn't know that he smells bad and is gross. And he thinks that he's a great lover. And the whole thing is that he goes and he sort of like, grabs women and dips them and says, I want to kiss you. And they want to throw up because he smells so bad. And the comedy is this guy doesn't know what he's like. He has no idea. And he is like every lech, every gross 63-year-old governor of New York State kissing women who are could be his granddaughter. Okay, like, and I okay. Can I just say I'm, I'm interrupting you, but I I grew up watching these cartoons, and the message for young girls who saw that, first of all, you definitely pick. That's immediately what you see. Like, ew, gross. Look at this, you know, disgusting skunk who thinks he's so amazing. That the reaction of the female, oh, it's almost always a cat who accidentally gets a stripe of paint down her back. Like, so it's not even yeah, a fellow skunk. Right, yeah. So her reaction's always pretty tough with Peppy. Like she comes out on top. She's like back, you know, there's some horrible prank she pulls on him or he, you know, he suffers for his boorish behavior immediately within the tiny arc of three minutes of that section of the cartoon. He gets his comeuppance every time, every time. So that's also something that was overlooked. Right. Right. Well, look, the discovery that Charles Blow is a blithering idiot is nothing new to anybody who has had the tragic misfortune of having brain cells die in the midst of reading a single sentence of his bloviated nonsense over the course of a long period 
of embarrassing commentary. Having said that, there is something representative about what happened here. It is a logical extension of all of this that people, and much of what happens in cancel culture is that people misunderstand something. And then as they misunderstand it, the idea is that their misunderstanding is the fault of the thing they misunderstand and not their own misperception or their own foolishness or their own ideological blinkers that make it impossible for them to see things clearly. And that's then stage two of of cancel culture, which is, no, you got this wrong. Wait a minute. You're saying this about thus and such, and it's not really like that. And it's like, well, I think it's like that. So what's the difference between it being like that? Or that's the, that's the famous irregardless, regardless of context, it's offensive, right? This is exactly like the, um, the sort of the, the times uh, writer getting, fired for discussing um the the, the n-word um in a sort of meta uh, sense about when it's okay to discuss the n-word because the the what charles blow misses about the uh, the pepe le pew cartoon is that it is also <laughs> it's, a, it, so ridiculous. It's, it's preposterous <laughs> what it's, charles blow missed about yeah, pepe le pew yes. anyway go ahead no but 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 the cartoon itself is is a discussion of sort of you know um, predatory male behavior, right? And right. and it and 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 it brings down a judgment on it. There's um so right. I'm I'm writing at this writing on this for great at great length for my upcoming book, and there's an element less of mis I would say less about misinterpretation on their part than the assumption that you're an idiot, that you can't consume this sort of thing. So generally, I mean, you can trace this back to the American Library Association going after Laura Ingalls Wilder um, because they removed her from an award. They removed her name from uh, various other, you know, uh, things that, that had graced this, this house they wanted to remove it from. And also they wanted to not censor her book, but place warnings on it in part because there's a line in there that's particularly in one of her um, uh, little house books that's particularly dated. One of the characters says the only good Indian is a dead Indian. And that generally started this, uh, movement and created the predicate for banning these sort of books, censoring these books, at least creating warnings for these books. But you have to be a complete boob to encounter that line and not see a dated reference there. Any sentient creature of any age would encounter that line and realize that it was a product of a very different world. And the assumption here is that you you don't know that, that you can't know that. Maybe you'll be motivated to go out and slaughter Native Americans, I suppose. I don't know what their thought process is, but it's generally an assumption that you are too stupid to breathe without the the, the beneficent aid of a liberal Sherpa holding your hand and telling you what's what. It's infantilizing. It's deliberately infantilizing. And actually, one of the great joys of, of uh, you know reading old books from your childhood to your kids is occasionally you will discover those moments and be like, oh, wow, Ooh, times have changed. Often for the better. Sometimes I read the books actually that show courageous boys doing crazy boy things. And I think, ooh, times have not changed for the better. Like this would never pass muster in, you know, kind of our our, our feelings about gender relations now. But that's exactly right. They're treating you like a child because they don't believe you have the skill to to make that assumption and make those uh, observations yourself. Okay, but to be fair, and but this is where it gets really pernicious, right? The The defense of it is that you are a child. In other words, the the people who need... 
to be protected from Dr. Seuss are not us. It's impressionable six or seven or eight year olds who are going to see images that are going to turn that are going to. That's the parents job, not the states. Okay, you're saying that, but they're saying, and by the way, just to get uh, through uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder, uh, it is very important to note that that entire attack on Laura Ingalls Wilder is disingenuous, false, and a lie, because the reason they don't like Laura Ingalls Wilder is the discovery that she was a radical right-winger who hated the New Deal, was deeply opposed to Franklin Roosevelt, did not like government, hated government, and believed in, in collaboration with her daughter, who wrote these books with her, that what they were portraying was a world of self of American self-sufficiency and people who, under adverse conditions and terrible circumstances where people go blind and people die and all of this, nonetheless struggle, persevere, and make their way without government. And when somebody wrote a book about Laura Ingalls Wilder and her, and her daughter – uh, about 15 years ago, uh, this was a horrifying discovery for many people who then decided in p- proto form that she needed to be canceled. Look, obviously, the book that really has been a a signature complex issue uh, in the world of cancellation or whatever, how to deal with kids, is The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn because – it is a book in which a character is referred to routinely by the N-word uh, and in which he is, you know, he basically is a, he's a runaway slave, right? And he ends up in this, uh, you know, on this raft with this, uh, with this uh, boy. Um, understood in its deepest sense, Huck Finn is a story about a, the moral awakening of a child who does not know about oppression, injustice, and the horrors that have been visited upon uh, blacks brought to the United States and learns this in the course of the book and learns that the civilization that he is being groomed to be a part of is one that he maybe wants no part of because it's too corrupt and evil. Uh, That's the deepest truth about Huck Finn. Um, On the other hand, you can sort of understand why people are unnerved by the idea that kids are going to read a book in which a character is called N-Word Jim. I can't even say it, right, on this podcast without getting in trouble. And there it is right there in Mark Twain's print. So that's... They're hearing that word constantly if they listen to certain kinds of music. I mean, that's the Yeah, but with an A. With an A, not with an E-R. It doesn't count if it's with an A. Well, I mean, I share your... I I actually agree with what you said about Huck Finn in particular. Um, But again, to Noah's point... Who who should be deciding that for children? It should whose role in society is that to monitor that kind of thing? But there, you know, there's also a tremendous contradiction here. Um, if if the point of uh, so much of the revolutionary left is that this country was founded on racism and evil, um, why are they interested in erasing all the evidence of it? Right? I mean, well, so what is what who, to whose benefit is it? to get rid of documents of um, people using racist language and portraying minorities um, in, in, in unflattering uh, terms. And, you know, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's a kind of what they're simultaneous, simultaneously sort of prosecuting the, the past and whitewashing it. And also creating, you know, Sonny's dot out of this stuff. Yes. And driving it underground. And this is the most pernicious aspect of trying to create bifurcated culture, the notion that there's some culture that's yours and some culture that's not, 
Um, first of all, it's very frustrating because if you're, you know, an, an American and appreciate American culture, black culture is American culture. African-American culture is American culture and cuisine and art and language and literature and music. It's all the same thing. You can't, you can't create moiety out of it. It's just not going to work. And so people rebel against that. And that's part of what you see, Christine, if anybody grew up in the nineties, you encounter that word very often in pop culture. So it makes sense that there's a little bit of confusion as to that. I think we've erased some of that probably for the better. Nevertheless, that confusion is endemic and inherent because you can't, separate these strands of American culture from from one to the other. And if you do, you're going to create this underground white culture, which is probably quite toxic. Abs- look, absolutely. And they're going to take the worst possible message from it, which is that Huck Finn is bad uh, and they, they'll like it because it's bad and they, and they will therefore misunderstand it simply because it's forbidden you know what right. what it's should be forbidden taboo. what should be forbidden about this kind of beautiful highly complicated message that it 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 delivers in its you know with its unreliable narrator who doesn't understand the meaning of the story that he is telling you know the ultimate unreliable narrator book is huck finn that's the whole point of it is it's a it's a it's a nearly illiterate little boy who learns unwillingly stuff about the world um, and its pain and its danger and its beauty and its magnificence and all of that. And that you're not allowed to read because it's a slow journey to realization and you're just going to have the word flashing there. So that's why no, I, I mean, oppose they, it. You know, I yeah, oppose the cancellation of it. But yeah. Well, the, the novels with an unreliable narrator are some of the best in terms of teaching because you have the reader has to figure it out for him or herself. And now we're in the era of the unreliable censor, right? So there's a, there's just there's <laughs> Ooh, some stuff good. that you're thinking yeah. like, wow, they let that get through. That's crazy. And then other stuff that you're like, okay, this is not a problem. Yeah. I mean, Abe, you and I have talked about this a lot, and I think we may even have mentioned it here before, but. Um, you know, uh, Jews in particular have have to wrestle with what it means to read great works of art and great works of philosophy, great works of everything that have absolutely conventional, horrifying portrayals and versions and 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 images of of Jews in them. Right, that don't even come out the other redemptive side of like Huck Finn. You know, it's not like. The, the the message stays that um, Jews have somehow been a stain, you know, on 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 the, on on Europe or or whatever else. I mean, yeah, if you read, if you have any love for Shakespeare, Dickens, Edmund Burke, Dostoevsky, uh, whomever, it, it, it's 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 endless. It's 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 in the pages. It's woven through all of it. Um, and the idea of canceling those things. I, we, we would be, as a reader and a consumer of great works, and, and as a Jewish one, I would be um, just um, so much poorer for, for, for throwing it all out because of the bigotry of, 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 of the authors involved. And also, you know what? I mean, we can take it. That's right. We can take it. I mean, uh, you, you, you can, you, it is instructive. I mean, you could even say to an African-American dealing with Huck Finn, uh, this could have been you 165, 170 years. This could have been you. And it's not you. Uh, what happened? 
and you should be angry. It should make you enraged and furious that this could have been you. What are the circumstances that, you know, if you were forced to be in that position or now, I mean, this is what a learning experience, this is what a teachable moment is or a learning experience is, right? Uh, This could have been you. So what what does it mean to read The Merchant of Venice? Uh, It's hard. It's very hard. Uh, It's on the one hand, it's unjustifiable. And on the other hand, what does that mean that it's unjustifiable isn't it important to understand that this was the cultural position of the Jew in Elizabethan and, and it, when when Western culture was taking this colossal leap forward in terms of its genius and its ability to change the world and all that, not only in Shakespeare but in Renaissance Italy, right? And I would be—I have to say—if anyone proposed um, silencing or canceling those works, the older works that portray Jews in, in that way. I would take a personal offense to it because that is part of the history of of being Jewish is 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 having to come up against those portrayals and those ideas. Um, who would want that erased? I, I'm going to bring that, us that's, culturally. That, that, that's something that was overcome, you know. Well, yeah. and that's it, that's actually there's a broader cultural shift in particularly in the U.S. that because I remember from childhood, um, and again I'm bringing us way down into the muck. Forget Shakespeare. Think about advertising, right? The one I remember, remember Virginia Slims, the advert, the very skinny cigarette that was marketed towards women. The whole message was, "You've come a long way, baby. Like you now, you can smoke too." I mean, obviously, there's a whole bunch of complicated <laughs> things about that message, but the idea was that it was a very optimistic one. It was you know the past, so you can celebrate the freedom you have now. And now we've kind of come to this place where it's like, all we look at are the negative things about the past. So we're going to erase them or only talk about how terrible everything is still now. The, the It flattens historical and cultural context to the point where you literally are not allowed to discuss it. But that's why when I said that the Laura Ingalls Wilder stuff was disingenuous, why that's important. Because ultimately... Um, if patriotism is the last refuge of the scoundrel, right, which is what Dr. Johnson said, invoking the threat to children from culture uh, is often the first refuge of the scoundrel. It is a it is a it is a power play. Uh, it is a way of um, eliminating discussion and debate. Uh, it's a way of saying, wait a minute, I don't really think that child molesters go into basements dressed up as clowns and have satanic rituals with four-year-olds. I, that, doesn't, that doesn't pass the smell test with me. I've lived on this planet a long time, and that's just not the way things work. And then the way they subvert that in the 1980s is to say, how dare you not believe the children? You must believe the children when anyone who has ever had children knows you don't believe a four-year-old's account of reality. It's for very good reasons. They live half in a fantasy world as, the, uh, you know, that of their own uh, that's more pleasurable than the one that they live in or not pleasurable as, 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 as they wish. So um, the invocation of children is the reason for everything for you to um, – circumvent ordinary rules of discourse and behavior because there is a moral threat to the very existence of these most delicate and fragile and, you know, uh, creatures um, is, uh, you know, you should immediately like reach for your, I don't know, I was going to say, you know, 
reach for your gun, but I don't mean reach for your gun. I mean, you should, you immediately should have your hackles up and assume that you're being bullshitted basically. Um, but that goes on the, I mean, you know, this used to be the, the, the game of the right. Right. And, 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 you know, the, the great satirical moment in the music man, now that we're, we've gone from, very low to as Virginia Slim's Pepe Le Pew Dostoevsky, and now I'm mentioning the Music Man, where he's got to figure out some angle to get the people in town to buy into his nonsense boys band, and his uh, associate Marcellus says, you know, they just got a pool table, and he's like, well, I can use that, and then he of course sings the whole song about how they start. It's not a pool table; it's a billiard table. Uh, I mean, it's a pool table. They're sinking balls. It's, you know, unlike billiards, this is morally sinful. And, you know, it, soon they'll be smoking cigarettes and drinking liquor and having sex. So you better let me sell you an instrument. You know, let me sell you a boy's band instrument so that they'll be distracted from the evil of a pool hall, you know, here in River City. And that's 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 how you, they get you. They get you by threatening your kids by saying your you kids have are to under quote threat. the song that's it's trouble starts with a T that rhymes with P that stands for pool that like that's for the, pool, yeah you see yeah. the logical leap literally mm-hmm. baked yeah. into the song that's what makes yeah. it so one iconic. fine night uh, they leave the dance heading for the dance at the armory libertine men and scarlet women and ragtime dangerous music that'll take your son your daughter in the arms of a jungle animal instinct mass hysteria right that's that's what you're being sold uh, in the music man, and that's what you're being sold when people threaten your children uh, by saying your children are at risk. Not, by the way, that our children aren't at risk under certain circumstances. And I'm going to tell you one way in which they're at risk. They can be at risk from big tech suppressing their opinions, our opinions, and our access to things uh, online. Um, uh, we've been talking now about how conservatives uh how you know ideas are being canceled conservatives getting kicked off social media platforms why are we giving these people our personal data why these lines have been drawn big tech has made it clear which side they're on so now is the time to take a stand protect your personal data from big tech with the vpn i trust for my online protection express vpn every device whether you're on your phone laptop or tv has a unique string of numbers called an ip address when you search for stuff watch videos or even click a link Big tech companies can use that IP address to track all your activity and tie it back to you. But when I use ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through their secure encrypted servers so these companies can't see my IP address at all. My internet activity becomes anonymized and my network data is encrypted. And the best part is you don't need to be tech savvy at all to use ExpressVPN. Just download the app on your phone or computer, tap one button, and you're protected. Stop handing over your data to big tech companies. Defend your rights. Use the VPN I use every day. Visit expressvpn.com slash commentary. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S, vpn.com slash commentary. To get three extra months free, go to expressvpn.com commentary, expressvpn.com slash commentary right now to learn more. Can we really not finish this podcast without having a conversation about the CDC guidelines? I think not. CDC has now said that if you're fully vaccinated, you can meet other fully vaccinated people indoors in small groups without your masks on. Gee, thanks. Thanks, CDC. That's really helpful. So you mean I'm vaccinated and you're vaccinated so we can come together, the the four of us, uh, and take our masks off. But, okay, uh, wait, I have it. to... 
you have I have we have to give our listeners some context for that extremely hilarious bit of sarcasm right there that John is reacting to. And that's because of the way the new guidance has been framed um, in mainstream media, in particular, CNN being the worst offender here, which basically sent out tweets and did a story on its website about how, you know, you may now you now have permission from the CDC to resume some limited freedoms. And this actually it also it anyone who has even the slightest bit of libertarian instinct in them immediately recoil is like, wait a minute, the CDC doesn't doesn't define what my freedoms are and doesn't get to tell me what to do. They can offer advice. That's their role. Guidance is guidance, not not legitimate lawmaking or policy making. Yeah, I think I think the the line was the CDC g- gives you limited gives freedoms. You, yes. That's how CNN yeah, framed yeah, it, yeah. I should say. Right. Um so here's the thing. Granted we don't have a hundred percent certainty on this. But every study that has now been done or is being done using Israel and various other places suggests that at least Pfizer and Moderna, as far as we know, not only inhibit the ability of you to get the virus by, you know, an an overwhelming margin, but apparently do do the work that vaccines are supposed to do in inhibiting your ability to transmit the virus to somebody else. That was always a question because of the way the modality of the vaccine and how it functions, and whether or not you could get the vaccine, the virus trapped in your mucous membranes and various other places that it could somehow spew out of you because though it couldn't go into your body, it could rest on your body or in, or in sort of like these porous areas of your body and then be, uh, you know, be exfiltrated to others. And that, that everything that we now know anecdotally or, you know, preliminarily suggests that it does interfere with that which is the last phase of why you need to wear a mask or why you need to, you know, why you need to not congregate socially. More than that, the studies suggest that the, at least the Pfizer vaccine neutralizes the, the evil variants, including the South Africa strain, the UK strain, the Brazil strain, all the stuff that's supposed to be absolutely terrifying. More and more data is coming in to suggest that this is pretty liberating. The, the, I expected the CDC guidelines to be worse than they were, frankly. Um, they're not great. But, you know, the beyond gathering inside with people who are vaccinated, small people who are vaccinated, it also says that if you're fully vaccinated two weeks after your second dose, whatever you have, um, that as long as you're surrounding yourself with people who are in a profound risk, that even if they're unvaccinated, you can have a reasonable assurance that you're safe and take off your mask and, and you know, resume life. What they didn't do is update travel guidelines along these lines, um, which I'm pro- very prepared to completely ignore. Um, I'll be fully vaccinated pretty soon. I'm getting on a plane to Florida, and it's going to be an, a disgusting display of recklessness <laughs> on my part. And I, I, I'm completely prepared to be that person. And I guarantee you a lot of people are prepared to be that person. We're going to go back to a time in which it was routine to ignore the CDC's guidelines. The CDC's guidelines are excessive for a reason, because just like the American Library Association, they assume you're an idiot. They think that you need excessive guidelines because you might do 60% of what they're recommending. And that's what they want. They want 60%. They don't want 100% compliance. Really? Because 100% compliance with their life, their lifestyles is a miserable existence. Well, they don't Devoid care. Devoid of pleasure. They don't care. Exactly. But I do. No, look. If a, and everybody else does. You go to the, and you're going to go about go your to life the like, dentist, like right? You go to a dentist. I mean, I have friends who are like children of dentists. They were never allowed to eat sugar. They couldn't eat sugar. 
dentists know sugar rots teeth and it really does and it's really bad and like uh, my sister my late sister sucked on luden's lemon ice dro- lemon uh, lemon drops uh you know for 10 years and basically rotted her teeth out like she had god knows how much dental work she had had to have done because of these because of these uh these uh, lemon drops so um it's true right but so a dentist kid isn't allowed to ever have sugar right uh and but we're not all dentist kids, you know? I mean, that's the whole thing. The CDC is like Caesar's wife. You should live a life in which no possibility of your getting sick or anybody else getting sick from you should ever happen. That's what they're there for, is to tell you that that's what they're supposed to do. Yeah, and then you take or don't take the guidance as it is. I do think that the country is really bifurcated in this sense, which is there are people who want to be told what to do and to listen to experts and who they're like, you know, sort of A students who listen to the teacher and do what the teacher wants. And that actually provides order and balance and all this. And you can say that this is the sort of thing that we kind of want when we talk about how all the institutions have corroded and no one like lives among institutions anymore. Part of what we want is for people to sort of live within institutional structures that 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 provide boundaries and and help us have a more organized society. But then you have other people who are like, who the hell are you? You have no right to tell me what to do. I think you have no, and, 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 you know, I, there's no real reconciling these two somehow. Well, that's it. I think we're headed for a very tense moment uh, in, in the culture because pre uh, vaccine, there was a case, I think a good case. And it's, it's one I essentially subscribe to that. Even if you thought that wearing masks outdoors where no one was around is sort of silly and onerous, um, you did it because it made other people feel comfortable. Um, two weeks after my second vaccine, I'm I'm not going to be concerned with making other feel people feel comfortable. In fact, I think it's vital that we that that if you are vaccinated, it is vital if you ha- if you want to get back to normal uh, as a, as a society to ignore the CDC guidance on this. Um, and this is going to be you know when Noah goes on his reckless tear, and I hope he does. Um, and when other people do, that's going to... You don't have anything to worry that's, about. But there, there's, there are going to be problems. I mean, you know, people are going to push back. There there are people who are want to c- continue to live by by public health guidance for the rest of their lives. Something that was not in their lives uh, a year and a half ago. This will now, they they will, will continue to sort of want to treat that as as one of the I mean, guiding the, principles. The, the data is just piling up. The data is almost all good. And there's only so long you can ignore the reality around you for the sake of appearances, for the sake of ideology. I don't agree. I mean, after a certain point, the CDC guidelines are going to catch up with this fact. And then the people who are adhering to this restricted lifestyle are not going to be predicating their choices on data in any form. I, I just I, – I've got I've to push back on you guys because I, I don't know. You, you say that this is how you're going to live. But – you're not going to be able to go into a mall without wearing a mask. You are not going to be able to go into certain places without wearing a mask. Uh, if you have school-aged children, your children are going to have to wear masks at school until it is decided that they're not. You cannot have uh, sort of like a personal rebellion uh, if you are living in a larger society until the society itself is ready in the form of 
either shutting Dr. Fauci up or Dr. Fauci finally, you know, acknowledging that his role in life isn't to drive everybody insane, uh, you're going to have to keep wearing the mask. But there's, but there will be, I, I do think Noah and Abe are correct that there's going to become, there's going to come a moment when we've reached or are either almost at or nearing herd immunity and, um, uh, many, many people have gotten vaccinated, things are reopening, where the mask wearing as a public act will become Stepford wife-like, right? It'll be small groups of dedicated people who insist on these rigid norms because it shows something about, they take pride in it, actually. But but the tipping point, the question of when that tipping point comes, I agree, John, I don't, we're not there right now, but I don't think we're that far mm-hmm. from it. There will always be germaphobes and we will one day look on them as weird again. The CDC guidelines say something that is pretty revealing, I think. Fully vaccinated grandparents can visit unvaccinated healthy adult children and healthy grandchildren without masks or physical distancing. Why? Why is that? Because children aren't a vector of transmission? At a certain point, we're going to have to face up to the realities that are being presented to us by the very people you say are the reasoning for their their obsessive lifestyle choices. They're going to be doing this without a net. And it's going to be the burden of proof will be on them. Look, uh, summer is coming. Uh, by the time summer rolls around, teachers uh, can't fake how they can't be in school anymore because they won't have to be in school because it'll be summer. So magically and mysteriously, they also can go to the beach and it'll be summer. So, you know, viruses don't last well in summer. There's a lot of, that's my guess is like June, mid-June, suddenly you won't have to wear a mask anymore. Once, once the teachers get to stay out of school again for the summer. So the and the other thing that I noticed shifting, um, and we all keep in touch about this on our on our group chat, but there are more and more, you know, parents and, and there's a whole open schools movement now that that's now starting to pressure schools even to get a couple of weeks of in-person education done. Yes, there will be masks and testing and whatnot, but I, I really do suddenly see a shift in mood. And it's not just among conservatives who've been rallying about this for a long time. Here in DC this Saturday, there's a protest in front of the mayor's office by parents who want schools open for the fourth quarter, who are saying you have to give us this as an option, not saying everybody must return, but saying we need the option and we need some sports and activities for our kids. And we demand that all the teachers have priority for vaccination. It's a legitimate, logical set of demands. And I can guarantee you they won't get that. We will not have our kids back in school this year for that very reason, because there are already a lot of places are saying, oh, well, it's almost the summer. We'll start over next year. Crushing Morosity, everybody. Crushing Morosity for the win. Crushing Morosity t-shirts at merch.commentarymagazine.com. Buy it now. uh, And keep the candle burning and some other stuff. And we have some more product coming your way. We'll talk to you tomorrow. For Abe, Noah, and Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.